it happens through community as a pursuit of the kind of intimacy that on one level twins have, but even on the level of twins is still not complete. Like I see it all as pointing toward the light that is full unification with God. Right. Like even Hinea does not know me as well as God knows me. Mm-hmm. Right. And and that is the intimacy that I'm longing for, that Hinea is a prophetic signpost to myself and to the world mm. of what that intimacy looks like, what we were designed for. And it's all pointing us back. And as we pursue and find it in community, it teaches us, it, it helps us understand, but also deepen our, our yearning for what it is that we were designed for, which is the full intimacy with God. Welcome back to Barefoot to Emmaus. This is Char. And this is Byron. We are excited to bring to you today what is a new field of theological venture that I'm calling Geminist Theology. Geminist coming from Gemini. The I twins. almost like Geminis better than Geminist. This is what? the first time I've actually heard the T in it. Oh, really? I'm kind of making a play off of feminist, the term feminist oh, theology. It's okay. feminist theology. <laughs> yeah, I could see that. Because <laughs> I'm a punster. That's what I do. Um, Did I mention I'm an incurable prankster? So, what is Geminist theology? Yeah, Char. What is it? I want to start by saying that all theology is contextual. That there's no such thing as pure theology, plain and simple. You're Something, not going to get an argument from me. No something that we can can create that is entirely objective, that is entirely removed from our social location, that is removed from our individual experience, our communal and collective experience. That just doesn't exist. Even thinking about the different schools of thought in early Christianity, the Alexandrian and the Antiochian schools of thought coming from different regions, different cultures, mm-hmm. and that also fra- framing and shaping their theological understanding of the exact same historical moments. Like before there were mm-hmm. dozens of theologians across history who are producing tons of content. Culture already was shaping the way that Christ was viewed. I mean, even just thinking about the Christian story, you can't take it away from the Jewish context. No. So I, I do believe that there is truth of God that transcends human culture, because God is not just a cultural construct. Mm -hmm. However, when that truth is interjected into the human story, it becomes cultural. And the God who is in relationship to us who are subjective beings will naturally take on the subjective form of the person, the community. And that's not a limitation or or a a misrepresentation of the truth. It is uh, sort of a lens or uh, focus through which that gets in. So one, yeah. one image that I have is this idea of God as like the sun or light, you know, that's shining. And there is this stained glass um, Dyson sphere. <laughs> <laughs> there's there's a, a globe that is surrounding that light um, with these just a myriad of different hues and tones and thickness and texture. And each little fragment 
reflects a different aspect of the light out and it's Asset all almost. contained yeah it's it's all contained within the light source itself but as it stems through that light we see the different elements and we need that in order to understand the whole of what is the light that's being reflected interesting I'm, so it's only ever accessed subjectively yes yeah. yeah but there was a thing just a quick comment um jesus himself is and as god Maybe, I mean, Jesus was contextual as well, which makes God, a type of revelation of God, subjective. The truth of the revelation itself. Yeah. Yeah. So it's not just like, it's not just a sun with a like lens around it and the lens is separate from God. Mm-hmm. In some cases, like the lens itself is, is God, God <laughs> part of God. And, and yeah. that's not to equate all of our lenses sure, sure. through which we may or may not distort God. Yeah. Uh, it's not to deify those lenses. Yeah. But that even parts of God are not supposed to be objective, as in from a, from a non-viewpoint, essentially. Well, continuing down this rabbit trail a little further, it raises the question for me, was Jesus pure or perfect revelation of God? And I don't even know if that's the right question. I mean, I know as I'm asking the question, but but what I mean by that is um, the truth that is revealed in Jesus Christ is a truth that was necessary for us to experience. And it is the full presence of God within humanity. But Jesus would have looked, walked, lived differently in a different context, and it still would have been God. And so I wonder, you know, rather than trying to um, herald certain human identities, values that Jesus embodied because of his human, his cultural, his sociological context, we instead reflect on the truth of the beauty of how God can intersect and engage with all of those different cultures and values. Does that make sense? Uh, yeah. So, like, if Jesus were born in China, for example... His name wouldn't have been Yeshua. Well, that would have been <laughs> one major difference. But even theologically, you know, the history that he would be stemming from... Right, he would have been responding to Buddhism. Yeah, exactly. Because Buddhism was already around. Exactly. And and um, I, I don't say that to relativize Judaism as only happenstance. Because I think that would be a loss. Oh, yeah. Thanks for catching that. That's not what I meant to do at all. <laughs> yeah. Um, but what it does say is that the God of the universe is bigger than anything that we as human beings can create or engage. And so I don't think the the human form, the cultural context, uh, the way that Jesus walked through the world is necessarily reflective of a way that God would exist outside of the human context. Yeah, I mean, that's a really strong Christological thing to try to say, right? Like the, I don't know, the the way that that could fall off the edge of the board is saying that like, well, God, Jesus is just the God, the God, God, the human relevant God avatar that um, Jesus is only God insofar as God is relevant to humanity. Ooh, wait, wait, say that again. Jesus is only God in as far as God is relevant to humanity. What do you mean by that? 
So that like Jesus, what I what I'm kind of hearing is that you're saying Jesus or what we know of Jesus or maybe actually all of Jesus is only God to us, as in like insofar as try, keep trying to simplify it, but bigger words keep coming out. Um, <laughs> Lugubrious. Yeah. No. So. According to the Bible, at least, I think it's relatively important that Jesus was um, the the fullness of God. Yes. yes. But that doesn't mean that the cultural add-ons that God decided to take on, like potentially masculinity. Sure. Become God in a way that femininity does not. Right. Yes. Yeah. Um, And so the subjective aspect, and so that, that doesn't like, it's not a championing of whatever things God happened to have taken on that could have been different. Like, those are not attributes of God. They were attributes of the historical Jesus. Yes. But, ooh. Yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. So so when you, when you say they're not attributes of God, what you're saying is that they don't um, cause an ontological shift in God's essence. They don't cause an ontological shift, nor can they be read backwards from Jesus to say something essential yeah, exactly. or like, ontological about God. That which which comes to the violence of how, again, the example of Jesus as a man. You know, if we if we interpret scripture literally in that sense, and and don't try to problematize uh, that otherwise, you know, otherwise um, pretty straightforward, obvious assertion yeah. of, of Jesus as a man, um, to say that that says something about God's gender or sex or sexuality. Yeah, it would be as mistaken to do that with God's gender identity, sex, or orientation or anything, as it would be to try to project culture, yeah. Jewish or mm-hmm. colonized or otherwise, mm-hmm. yeah. onto the nature of God. So there are limitations to what the, I mean, maybe this is a little too modalist in some ways, but like there seem to be limitations to, uh, there, there's like a specific Bible verse that I'm forgetting that says like, that talks about the way in which Jesus was God incarnate. Like the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that's a hymn or if that hymn no, is no, related that's, to. That's in scripture. I think it's Colossians, but I could be wrong. Right. So anyway, that was a good thread. And I have some very interesting thoughts as to, well, I'm not one to say they're interesting necessarily. I have some thoughts that I'm interested in, uh, in how Christology relates to Geminist theology. So we'll get there, I'm sure. Yeah, um, but why did we get to? So the reason why I was talking about contextuality. Oh, context. Context. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. Is to say that each one of us, everyone listening, as a fragment of that stained glass globe, as a window into the divine. Oh, so we're the lenses. And a unique. Yeah, we are. Hmm. Or, or, or we we at least hold the lens. The lens might be the the. Accumulation of all the ways that we are shaped to our individuality, but mm, okay. in a, in essence, in in essentially, that what it comes down to is that yes, we are we are the lens, we are our window into the divine, and there's something that I can experience about God that nobody else can, and something that you can experience about God that nobody else can, because that's how big God is. That the experience of God is not something that is universalized to the extent that we all understand it the exact same way mm. or that even pockets and clusters of people understand it the same way. It's, it, it approaches, there's a kind of similarity that we might find ever, depending on your religious tradition, depending on uh, your background, your culture, all these things like they, they certainly shape the way that we engage and connect with God. But when it comes down to it, 
on an individual level and even a moment-by-moment basis. Like, for example, how you experienced God prior to after a major life transition. Mm. You know, that is a different you who's who's also a different window into the divine. Or prior or after a, after a good nap. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that yeah, I mean, the, the practice of uh, fasting, for example, right? Mm. You know, and the spiritual discipline of how we engage in the the focus mm. it's the it's the fine tuning it's the awareness the attentiveness to our body's needs and god is our provider who provides through good things like food mm. and to find god and the divine in that food and to approach it with an intentionality as opposed to um sort of an autopilot the point that i'm saying with all of that though is that we can make these broad collective acknowledgments of how the God experience is a universal experience. But we can also zoom in and zoom in and zoom in continually Mm. to the point of saying that not just each person, but again, on a moment by moment basis, you have a different window, Mm. a different experience into God. The reason I say all that though, is because when we hope to contribute to a broader understanding to help edify other people in their faith to to provide tools and resource and perspective that strengthens that deepens one another's ability to connect with the divine there's a saying we're all beggars trying to help another beggar find bread and we are on this collective journey together we are on a journey to help one another understand relate to experience the divine in as many deep and complex and nuanced ways as we can. And so if I have something to offer you that comes naturally to me, that is something that you are not aware of or vice versa. I mean, again, this is the gift of queerness, for example, someone who's not queer and who hasn't engaged in looking at the human condition through Mm -hmm. a queer lens. Like Mm -hmm. they're missing so much of the richness of what it is to be human. Indeed they are. And it you know it doesn't necessarily mean you have to change the way that you identify, but it does mean that you need to change the way that you look at the world, the way that you look at humanity, the way that you look at yourself, the way that you look at God. And so these contextual theologies, this is the future of constructive theology. This is the future of uh, the theology that humanity is producing, moving away from this colonial construct of quote-unquote pure theology, the way that white theology likes to claim itself as pure theology, <laughs> and then to subordinate other theologies like black theology, Latinx theology, mujerista theology, womanist theology, um, and say that these are subsidiary or supplemental, you know, but to instead say, no, no, all theology is contextual. Right. Well, it's not even, just quick thing, it's not even to say that white theology is dominant and others are subsidiary to it. It's to not acknowledge white theology as white. As coming from its own perspective. Yeah. Right, right. And even... I mean, again, Dr. Mikoski just said a small thing this morning. Um, I'm sure you'll get a lot of Mikoski just because we're recording these on Wednesdays and that's the class that I have in the morning now. <laughs> it's fresh um, on your mind. But uh, he was saying a, a very similar thing, this idea of moving away from an objective view of things, right? It's, it's Princeton Seminary that was self-described at the height of trying to be objective, and looking for, like, they, they were so confident that they were looking for an objective theology. Mm. And then they had to be told that it wasn't. Mm. So, anyway, just a small thought. Yeah. No, but you, you raise a good point 
um, Dr. Taylor was saying the other day how if a theologian, and I would say this extends to anyone, but if a theologian does not acknowledge their context, you should be suspicious. Mm. (laughs) Why are you hiding your context? Why are you not self-aware to be able to recognize how your context shapes your theology? So anyway, all that to say, though, part of my context, part of what makes me me and what allows me to have the theological perspective that I do is my identity as an identical twin. Ah, 15 minutes in, we get to it. Yeah. (laughs) That I am who I am because I am a we. That she and I, Hania, my twin, we share a connection that cannot be replicated and it cannot be experienced vicariously but it can be illuminating for others as I divulge how it shapes me to the best of my ability to put words to. Mm-hmm. Now, actually, as I say that even, I realize there is a part of this that is unfortunately limited by the capacity for language that you can't actually fully communicate experience. You can't communicate anything. <laughs> what you saying about me, huh? <laughs> one... One... Cannot communicate their own. Yeah. No, exactly. That that I will never know what it is to be Byron. Even you, tr- you do your best. You write a book about it. You right. You know, I just can't be in your experience. As soon as it exits my brain for me trying to communicate it, no matter how I'm trying to communicate it, it mm-hmm. just becomes another text to you. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't mean that it's not still valuable. Right. It's just epistemologically a different, different experience. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. So. Starting off here, and this is, I'm going to say, an introduction to Geminist theology because I have only the last month or so been reflecting on this question. Far be it from me to make a total field of theological study as one individual in conversation with my twin because she and I have talked about it a little bit. But, you know, isolated from all the other sets of twins or triplets and other people who have a similar experience that could fit into the broader picture of what would constitute the Geminist perspective. Um, There are a whole bunch of sociological studies, uh, other areas. I think it's mostly sociology. There might be some. There's a lot of medicine. Yes, that's the other big one. Yeah, so sociology and medicine. People are fascinated by twins. Make up the most uh, discourse on the twin identity. Theology, philosophy, hasn't really caught up. And so... Caught up. <laughs> I I hope to be studying more of this. I would say maybe caught the bug. Yeah, yeah. Uh, to, to read up on some of the rich information that these studies have found and to find where the points of translation are. And some problematic histories, too. Sure, absolutely. Absolutely. Especially medically. Yeah. Um. So let me lay out a few points here of what I would consider introductory Geminist theology. The first thing that I would say is, as I already alluded to, the I is a we. Now, in Western society, we have moved towards this highly exacerbated form of individualism Mm. 
where the self is so removed and isolated from the other. And culturally, broadly, historically, this has not been the case. And at present, there still are many cultures, particularly, you know, I'm thinking East Asia, I'm thinking in Africa, in Latin America, that have more of a collective bent. Mm -hmm. But with globalism, with neoliberalism, there is an increasing shift of where the, even those cultures are, are veering towards a Western view of individualism. But something about being a twin is a recognition that both the I and the we are incredibly valuable mm. and in many ways aren't actually extricable. That my twin is a mirror to myself, that I understand myself based on understanding her. And it's been that way since I was born, actually before I was born. Mm -hmm. That, you know, intuitively, when you're sharing a womb together, there is a mirroring that happens in the womb where, where you know, as you're, you're crawling around, I imagine uh, this would be a place where the medicine would have to come in. But, like, I imagine mm -hmm. there might be even a mirroring of heartbeat, right? Um, they say that even when you're just looking at someone and you're holding eye contact with them, someone close, uh, after, like, four minutes or so, your breathing will start to mirror each other and even your heartbeat can start to mirror each other. Now, that's isn't, like, mm. universal 100% of the time kind of thing, but the idea is that... like Sounds woo-woo to me, we but are, okay. We are designed... But, I mean, even just thinking about, like, um, uh, menstrual cycles, right? Like, they start to align. Right, but that's a chemical process. But but I think I would just want to push that a little further, that, that our bodies and our minds and our souls are not so separate into different categories. Like, there is overlap mm -hmm. and engagement where... I'm reading so much about your body right now that I don't even know I'm reading. Mm. Whether it be your body language, your posture, it might be like pheromones and hormones. It might be what like things that are not going on in my conscious brain. Like there is something about the human experience of per perceiving another person mm -hmm. where we are encountering them beyond just the conscious level. Mm -hmm. And so I think in that way, there is the, the parallelism where we can resonate with other people. We are designed for social engagement, for human connection. And when that human connection is as inherent as being a twin, as being made with one another. And I would say on a spiritual level for one another. So this is something that I will say when I think about my sense of call, as I, I may, I think I articulated during our podcast on radical economics that I have a very strong sense of call, but I would say in terms of my social identities, my number one is being a child of God and my number two is being Hineas twin. And that will always come before being someone's spouse, being someone's parent, because I was designed by God for that person, with that person. That there was something about that experience that was so... So when you say for another, you don't mean for another, for, for one another, like for each other. You mean for another one, for your twin? Yeah, so... Let's go to the idea of balance, right? That that um, darkness and light are not enemies, but they are balances to each other, right? Like there, there's a certain like mirroring and t intention that they hold that allows us to be able to perceive. Because if we didn't have darkness, we wouldn't actually see anything. You know, the, our ability to see is based on a limited exposure to light. You know, otherwise our retinas would just be zapped with everything and, and there wouldn't actually be any anything to see, right? Like color, you see because there is a certain light that is not being absorbed. 
but everything else is being absorbed. Yes. Right, like you look at blue, and it's the blue wavelengths that are bouncing off, and every other wavelength within the light is being absorbed. Right, or is it the reverse? Is it the blue? No, that's no, being no, absorbed? no, no. That's that's the way it is. But um, you're you're going about that uh, in a different phys- physics way than I thought you would. Than you were. Yeah. Okay, that makes sense. So we and and many philosophies and religions have understood the idea of balance. Like Taoism, I think, is probably the pinnacle of this. But you know, mm-hmm. in in Buddhism, even in Christianity, there is a lot of a recognition of the value. Greek Stoic philosophy had a lot of that too. Absolutely, absolutely. And so thinking about a twin then as the other half of a whole, um, where we are two halves, we're separate, but we are also one whole, and that it is together, it is in relationship with one another that we are whole. And so when I think then about what this means for all people, and this is why my idea of oneness is so, like this is, where it comes from emotionally, where it comes from internally, mm-hmm. um, the sense that we are all connected is the recognition that I know better than most people what it is to be connected to someone. And I experience that connection. And when I witness that in my twin, when I see her and I see myself, like literally seeing myself, not just on a physical level, but on a spiritual level, that identification, I understand and can extrapolate that to see it in other people. And, and there's this recognition in that relationship. Oh, this is what we were made for. Oh, we were, we were made for connection. And that connection is both a point of distinction where there is a she and there is an I, mm-hmm. but it is also the connection of well, we are one. And so that balance of both we and I is a huge part of being a twin and, and a very important intro pillar to Geminist theology. Hmm. I'll start there. Do you have any questions or things? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah. So one thing that I have that I didn't hear necessarily from you is uh and this may be a distinction in in the way, you know, the difference between types of twins um or difference that would translate somewhat into triplets or other forms of uh I don't know what <laughs> what's the word for like co-fetal development. <laughs> um, uh, you didn't mention identical biology mm-hmm. or genetics or something. And, I, and I'll get there. Oh, okay. But um, And because you get a really interesting thing that happens with two people who are genetically identical who then from breath one mm-hmm. are now getting different stimuli. Mm-hmm. Um, and you get some really interesting, of course, nature nurture questions, and that's the core of, I think, what has fascinated uh, modern, yeah, sociologists, psychotherapists, all of that stuff. Um, the two kind of questions that are maybe a little like cautious questions. Um, it sounds my my complementarity alarm is going off. Mm. Um, like balance, yes. But the idea of to be completed by an equal or opposite other, so my my queer radar is like ah warning warning yeah yeah, yeah. um in if if in if or how that relates to like 
gender complementarity in marriage, men and women type of stuff. Um, you also have a very interesting, unique perspective of having a trans twin. Mm-hmm. Um, and I am curious about like your experience of that. I mean, I know your experience of that a little bit just from talking with you as your friend. Yeah. Um, but to extrapolate and, and go on that. Um, the duality... Um, complementarianist almost uh, vibe that I'm getting so far um, from just that one small aspect also uh, and this may be very personal uh, raises orange or maybe red codependency flags yep yep yeah so those are those are my thoughts so far those are great thoughts uh, let's start with complementarity so the issue, actually, I'll, I'll ask you, what is the issue of complementarianism in a, in a succinct nutshell? Mm. It's the idea of uh, incompleteness that can be, and that must be, um, I think that puts you dependent upon another. Um in a way that is restrictive. Like, I, I don't think I'd have a huge problem. I don't think I'd have as much of a problem with complementarity if it wasn't gendered mm-hmm. and therefore restrictive. Like, as a... So I'm bi, so technically, you know, I would have a 50-50 or slightly less uh, chance of being paired up with the right match, implying that there could be a wrong match. Yeah. Um, so the idea of, like, mutual dependence, of, like, I need you to survive, mm-hmm. uh, that gets to that to you know healthy i think there's healthy ways to do that yeah. uh but the complementarity issue is i think if it's a restricted if it's restricted right like to say that there's a wrong way to do it mm. yeah like okay. two men together misses the like there's certain theologies that there's some basis for these in greek myth i don't know if these extend to but more recently i've been hearing especially queer people uh actually or especially non-binary people specifically, really like the idea of a non-binary atom Mm. that then was differentiated into male and female. And so it kind of primatizes the non-binary aspect, which I think is beautiful. Um, I think theologies should not be built on what came first, though, Um, with a creative God. Uh, But what that would mean problematically, then, is that, like the image of God is only complete when a cis man and a cis woman get together. Mm. And that would be a problem for gay people. That would be a problem for uh, celibate people. Like, what does that mean theologically? Was Jesus not the full image of God because he was celibate? Mm. Anyway, that's that's at least my area of relevant critique to complementarity. Much of which is not relevant to, or I hope it's not relevant. Yeah. (laughs) Fix it. Fix it. (laughs) We have talked about complementarianism somewhat recently this this season i don't remember Did at we? what point yeah yeah because I, I have thoughts coming up them like oh i actually remember talking about this recently but i'll be huh. uh, succinct with this which i would say when we think about the image of god oh yes it is not complete without women nor is it complete without men hmm. i'll get to the queer identity in a second starting there I think there is something actually really beautiful and powerful to say that we were designed on a biological level 
to need not just one physical or sex-related identity, but that men need women and women need men. Like there's something really beautiful about that, an inability to exist outside of the harmony of that balance. Now, as the richness of humanity is, is, it comes forth, is communicated, is given space to be seen and heard, we realize so much more the nuance of what that image of God means, what it looks like. And now that we are allowing queer voices to be heard, it doesn't mean that they didn't exist before. Queer people existed before, and in, you know, whether it be in terms of uh, social stigma and repression or even a complete sense of ignorance as we societally learn more about how identity like what even what it even means, mm, right? Mm-hmm. Like, um, just think about the idea of a eunuch, right? Um, and the different perspective on queerness that existed two thousand years ago. But as as we discover more about the human condition, as we discover more about the richness of diversity in in humanity, we discover discover more about the image of God, and we realize what it is that we can't be complete without. Now, I would say that that then extends kind of like talking about the stained glass globe or the many windows into the divine, that we actually are not the complete body of Christ. We are not the complete image of God without everyone. That in your unique position, even if it seems like someone else has all the same identities as you, there's still something unique about you that reflects the image of God that nobody else has. Mm -hmm. And so I would universalize it in that sense. Um, but in these broad categories, yes, I don't think society can exist as it was created to exist without men, without women, without queer people, non-binary people. Yeah, well, I think an important thing that I, I was hoping you would say is, particularly from an ace perspective, that the the arrival, the attaining of the union between yes, differences yeah, thank you, thank you. is not a sexual thing. Yeah. Like... You don't you don't arrive at the union of male and female by those two having sex. Yeah. But just being in in you know flesh of my flesh, bone of my bone. This is what Adam and this is what Adam says to Eve. It's not a sexual mm. uh, term. It's a kinship term that is as it's used throughout the rest of the Bible uh, to relate to that that marriage level almost unity. Yeah. But it's just as often used in uh, same-gender situations not to indicate, like, a marriage or a sexual relationship, obviously or inherently, although it could be. Um, but that, I think that solves the—you still get this, like, partialism thing, like, am I just walking around currently as a fragment of what I need to be or should be? And, and that could lead to a type of desperation <laughs> um, or isolation— um, although, yeah, anyway, so that, that could go in a help, helpful direction. I could also see it being very, uh, not encouraging. And what do we do with like people who seem to be called to types of isolation, whether it's monasticism or celibacy or whatever, but that the unity isn't accomplished sexually. Yes. Unity isn't accomplished exclusively sexually. I sure. think, I think that there is a facet of the sexual that absolutely has, its place in our pursuit of intimacy. 
But sure. as someone who was formed as one cell mm. or, you know, one, one fertilized egg that became two, that shared one space, we were closer than anyone could ever be in sex. The kind of union, the kind of intimacy that is thought of, of you know. You and your twin? Becoming one with someone. Yeah, me and my twin. Mm. Like nobody else other than identical twins and, and triplets or pairs mm-hmm. was ever one the way that twins were one. Right. Like that is a kind of intimacy that nobody else can, can experience. It's all an approximation. Yeah, the closest you would get other than that is motherhood. Yeah. Right. I, I think it's a Vsauce episode that says because of the like uh because of the repulsive atomic forces between atoms, like you can't actually touch anything. <laughs> you have never in your life touched anyone or anything except potentially your mother or in this case your twin. Uh well, twinship is even even supersedes this in a in a slightly different yeah. way. Um or potentially if you like, I don't know, eat someone. <laughs> or I mean I suppose you could like kiss someone and you're exchanging body fluids or whatever. Um you are you are ingesting part of them and they become part of it. So that's a, that's maybe the only way of actually touching someone. Um but twinship supersedes that even because you literally were the same group of cells until that blastocyst split presumably. Um I'm only superficially familiar with the biology of twins, right? You could have two different sperms reach two different eggs, and then you could have... Fraternal twins, yeah. Yeah, as opposed to a single zygote or blastocyst or whatever that then splits yeah. with then literally the same. You could also have... I'm I, I'm curious if there's a chimerism type mm-hmm. of twinship Yeah, there um, is. that I have some thoughts on, but... <laughs> I mean, it, it's extremely rare, yes. But, but yes, chimerism does exist too. Um, going back to Adam and Eve, though, because I appreciate that you brought them up. There is something about Adam, which again, human, human, not man, right? What existed in this um, mythopoetic human origin story as the singular, and then God said, "Well, it is not good for you to be alone. It is not good for you to be singular." And God does not create this exact replica of Adam, but God creates. And I don't want to say counterpart in the complementarian sense where mm-hmm. now we have gender, male, female, becoming this one thing, but becomes this embodiment of the harmonic balance mm. of humanity that is that is distinct but is beautifully correlated and dancing together to make one whole. Now, Adam and Eve, this is one of the theological claims that I'm making in Geminist theology, was the first pair of twins. Mm. Mm-hmm. Because Eve was taken from the literal body of Adam. Yeah. That, that they came from the same stuff. God didn't start another person. Right. And so in that, they recognize the sameness and the distinction. Mm-hmm. That is where humanity started. It started with a twin, two twins. It's a pretty epic way to start. Yeah. And I think that's incredibly important then when we think about the flow of humanity that we're not coming from two separate um is it ideological points like 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 origin points like mm. it's not like humanity started as two humanities 
humanity started as one humanity in, in the theological sense. Again, mm-hmm. you know, we can have an evolutionary conversation about what humanity looks like, but, but from yeah. a theological <laughs> lens, from a theological lens, <laughs> There's humanity mitochondrial is one. Eve and then, yeah. then different type of Adam. From, from a theological lens, humanity yeah. is one. Mm-hmm. And, and that, I think, is one of the critical parts of recognizing the, the theological claim that I'm making about Adam and Eve there. Hero Israel. Your humanity is one. Your humanity, yeah. And so, in that sense, when we reflect on the gift of our intention, our creation, it's to continue to come back to that, to continue to reflect on our source, our stem, as still holding validity and truth to describing our humanity. Um, Jacob and Esau are a very fascinating set of twins in the Bible. You know, it says in God's um, prophecy to Rebecca that there are two nations within her, two peoples who will be separated. Mm. And theologians make these claims that this is a description of their antagonism because we see the antagonism flow later. But the two peoples being separated, well, that's twins being separated. And what we see in the womb actually is intimacy. That Hosea describes Jacob holding onto Esau's heel even before they're born. And this, this holding on is not a scene of violence. It's a scene of closeness. It's, it's almost desperation. It's don't leave me. As Esau is born first, there is an insecurity of being left behind. Mm. That Jacob is clinging, he's holding on, trying to not let go of the thing that makes him whole, the thing that makes him seen and known in a world that is scary and isolating. And the way that he tricks Esau out of his birthright and out of his um, blessing. You know, this is, this is coming from the twin who is not loved by his father, mm. which is this very odd binary in the story where it says that Isaac loved Esau and Rebecca loved Jacob. Mm-hmm. It's like, why, why, do you, why can't you love both your kids? You know, like there's this odd binarism there, but I think in some ways that reflects the insecurity of the children themselves of not wanting to be left behind. And so in this patriarchal society where the blessing and the birthright of the father was what instilled success and honor and, and value mm-hmm. to a person, for Esau to be given this by sharing the same stuff as Jacob and just, you know, by nature of being born first, you know, there's this insecurity of being left behind, of being forgotten that drives Jacob to steal this. But in this violence that is caused upon his brother, there is an internal rupture. There is... An, an internal disintegration of his humanity, that as a, as a twin, he is not engaging with his twin as one in that harmony of being together, but in a divisive sense of trying to claim for himself his own sight, his own sense of being seen and loved. But only by copying, only by embodying the other, actually. Which, yeah, that, I mean, that's beautiful in itself, but but it's, it's coming from a place of... Uh, a self-focus that forgets the other, right? Yes. Like, like I need <laughs> yes. to be seen, right? And and I need to be seen such that I'm not even going to care about you being seen. Right. Um, and so then there is this reconciliation scene uh, later on. Decades later. De- yeah, yeah, where uh, Jacob approaches Esau and um, gives him all of these, like, flocks of animals as a gift and is bowing prostrate before him, saying, my Lord, and describing himself as a service servant. So in, in some ways he's trying to... Um, humble himself and not claim power and superiority over his brother, despite the way that he, he took that from him earlier. Um, 
and and there is a scene of reconciliation there, but it's not perfect. It's not complete because again, we see the nations continue to war later because that wound that was caused was never healed. Mm. In Deuteronomy, it describes Edom as kin, Edom being the people who descended from Esau, kin to the Israelites who descended from Jacob. Mm-hmm. That these two nations coming from these two twins, they're still kin. They're still one. Again, tying to the uh, Adam and Eve sense of oneness in humanity, they're, they're meant to still perceive and experience that. But what happens in 586 BCE when Jerusalem is destroyed, suddenly the prophets and all the messaging becomes fiercely uh, animus. Is that the word? Aggressive against Edom. Antagonistic? Antagonistic. Where suddenly, like Malachi, for example, is this uh, bitter rebuke of Edom. And Edom was never militarily successful over Israel. It's not like they actually posed a threat the way that Assyria, Babylon, any of these other nations did. But yet Edom takes its own foreplace in the antagonism of Israel. Why is that the case? Well, because in the insecurity of Israel being exiled and having the holy city of Jerusalem, which was the the focal point of their religious experience with God to be Mm -hmm. uh, destroyed, there's a sense of being forsaken. There's a sense of being left behind and forgotten. Again, that fear, that insecurity of Jacob. And so who are they afraid then is going to take, is God going to take, have to take their place? Well, it's going to be Edom. It's going to be Esau's descendants. And so that antagonism turns toward them because they're the real threat still in wanting to not be left behind, wanting to be seen and held and loved by God. Hmm. Fascinating. So when you when you interpret these things from the Geminist perspective, when you when you see the relationship of the twins, it brings out a lot of nuance. It brings out a lot of richness to understanding both the history of Israel, the and the Jewish faith, and thus how the Christian faith evolves, but just even the the theological notion of humanity. So we start with Adam. We end with the second Adam, right? With Jesus, right? The, mm-hmm. the culmination of the story. Quick question. Are there are there any other twins in the Bible? Uh, Perez and um, what is her sister? It's not Tamar. I think Tamar has two, has twins. Um, mm. But they don't have a big story. Um, and then uh, Thomas is described oh, as a twin, yeah. but his twin is never part of the story. Well, people argue that Thomas might have been Jesus's twin. Wow, that's a, <laughs> I'm gonna need to look into that. Part you two coming look, up. You <laughs> should look into that. There's yeah, there's oh it's mostly Gnostic, yeah, it's mostly Gnostic texts. What? <laughs> yeah, there's Gnostic texts that argue that um that it was Thomas, uh, that Thomas was that Thomas's twin was Jesus. Um, wow, and that he went off to India. Uh, which is accepted (laughs) is often accepted. I think that Thomas did go to India, but there's these Mm -hmm. uh, really old kind of weird stories that people thought that Thomas was Jesus Mm. um, or ideas of the resurrection were inspired by looking at Tom. Anyway. Yeah. So you should look that up. Yeah, that is fascinating. I, my, my initial thought is, 
not just skepticism, but also concern because I feel like in many ways the message of Jesus is this sense of completion to the human story mm-hmm. in a way that I, I think that Jesus doesn't need a counterpart, but Jesus is the counterpart to all of us. Right. Jesus is our twin. Right. That's where I thought you were going. Yeah. Or maybe God's twin. Maybe <laughs> both. Um, well, well, Jesus was made out of our stuff the way that Eve was made out of Adam's stuff. Oh. You know, and and so God, who being... Wow, I just love hearing something so new. This is very refreshing <laughs> and cool. Uh, so God being of totally different stuff from us, mm-hmm. you know, you wouldn't even put God on the same conversation of like sibling, you know, God is father, mother, creator. There's this mm. still this mm-hmm. family sense there, but certainly There's like different stuff. ontological difference. Yes, yes. But Jesus to be born among us, with us, of us, is of the twin substance, is reflecting us in a way that God as father, mother, creator never could. Mm. And what I would say, and this is kind of the, the highlight in many ways of the Jesus story in the from the Geminist perspective is that when Jesus took us with him to the cross, into the grave, and in resurrection, as Paul writes. Don't forget hell. In, into hell. Yeah. And, and, and meets us there and finds us there and, and right. raises us up. Mm-hmm. That we have new life. We are born again in Jesus. Now, the moment of that rebirth is a single point in history with an eternal ontological transformation. But regardless of when we come into that, whether it be at our birth, whether it be at a point of confession and, you know, in an evangelical sense, opening your heart up to Jesus, whatever it looks like, though, for, for us to be become part of that people, doesn't matter when you're born, doesn't matter all of that, the, mm-hmm. the historical point of rebirth was the same, which means that we were in the womb at the same time. We were born together. We, were, we are all now twins. That all of humanity has become in twin kinship because of Jesus. So the Twink. idea... <laughs> twin kinship? <laughs> twin kinship. Sorry. So um, then, so one, one yeah, last thing. Uh-huh. Then when Paul writes, um, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither male nor female, there is neither uh, slave nor free. Mm-hmm. All are one in Christ Jesus. What I hear from the Geminist perspective is... All these differences that that make people siblings or that make people strangers or mm-hmm. that, you know, the, the social distinctions, biological distinctions that make us further and further apart, all of that is faded because we are now one. We are now the same stuff. We are now twins coming out together. And, and it's not to erase all of the richness of what makes us distinct because, again, one of the important contributions that I started with in the beginning is that Geminist theology begins with the perspective that the I is a we and the we is an I. Mm-hmm. And that both sides of that are vital. And so it is not an erasure of diversity, but a celebration of that diversity as the mirror that reflects our full self. That I can't see my full self outside of the richness and diversity of what you offer me, mm-hmm. what you show me about my condition. So anyway, that's that's most of what I wanted to talk about today. Fascinating. Such good things. I have lots of questions. Please. Most go. of them I think are constructive, even if they are cool. critical. <laughs> um Jesus as firstborn of all creation, mm-hmm. is that just the firstborn twin in a Jacob Esau way, or is well, who who was the firstborn? If we if we think about the Genesis story, is that the one where he sticks his 
arm or foot out or something and they wrap the red string around it and it's like, oh, he's born first, but then it comes back in and he and the other kid comes out. No, the the red string I think was uh was Tamar's kids. Oh, okay. Yeah, cuz that no cuz that also complicates the who is the firstborn. Mm-hmm. And Jesus oft or God in the Old Testament often selects uh the younger even if it is the younger of twins. Yeah. No, I actually meant- There's not a single pair of twins that I know who don't and I know a lot of twins uh who don't argue about or like who don't make a big deal about who was born first. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, even even when there isn't a birthright attached or some right, kind of sense right. of honor, that's still something that we want to be seen. We want to be recognized. There's something there that, you know, even the idea of all the disciples trying to claim who is the greatest, mm-hmm. like that is something part of the human condition. We just want to be seen. Well, and there's some just conservative aspect of humanity that seems to, maybe, that seems to think that first equals first. Mm. The first or best, or, yeah. Right. Well, no, I meant so in with Adam and Eve, right? Mm-hmm. Adam was creative, created, and then in a sense, Eve was born. Mm. It looked a little different. Mm-hmm. Um, but in that first, I'm I'm totally riffing right now. Just this, I might change my mind on this later, but this is the thought that I have right now. Mm-hmm. For Jesus to be the firstborn of all creation. I wrote a, a paper on this actually recently about how, no, sorry, sermon, that Mary reflects Eve in that uh, Eve was created out of Adam and Jesus was created out of Mary. So there's this chiasm of human history, starting with one, Adam, two, two, one. ending with Jesus. Or A-B-B-A. Yes, exactly. Thank you. That's helpful. So A-B-B-A, right? Abba. Um <laughs> <laughs> history, human history starts with Adam. It ends with the second Adam, with Jesus. Yeah. Uh, life comes because of Eve. The ability for life to start where, 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 where mm-hmm. new children can be born, where, where human identity now has its own necessary mirror and parallel and harmony with Mary, the mother of life. As the, as the end of that chiasm. Mm-hmm. Adam and Eve as twins. Mary and Jesus? Well, God is the father of Jesus, is, is the one who is adding to allowing life to exist, but there's no other human DNA that's been put into Mary. So wow. Jesus, biologically, on a DNA level presumably is a twin to Mary. Just born later, parthenogenetically. Yeah. So we start with these twins, we end with these twins. So the firstborn of new creation, he's still a twin. He's Mary's twin. Mary allows him to be whole. Mary allows him to exist. Mary is that mirror that allows him to shape his humanity for him thus to welcome us all into twinship. So in your ideal, there would be no primacy between who's first and who's second? Oh, yeah, no. Uh, I would say that order matters because I think that all things in a way matter. Now, what meaning we give to that, Mm -hmm. that I think becomes a subjective thing. Yeah. I think Adam to Eve 
married to Jesus, these orders matter. But it, it's not to say that there is a certain value or context described to that order. Right. Um, these are two thoughts just before I lose them, and maybe we could go in a different direction after that. Um, I think, uh, well, okay. Thought number one is two different thoughts, and thought number two is one thought. Um, let's hope I can remember thought number two. Yes, okay. So thought number one, uh, maybe this is a little silly, maybe it's a little uh, crude, but there seems to be something either um, incestuous or Oedipal about this. Oedipal is in Oedipus? Yeah. Um, about what part? There, there's a conflation. There's an, there's a really interesting parallel that you, you're conflating motherhood with twinship in a couple different ways. Um, or you're only in the context of Mary. I'm even um, to to be born of another, mm-hmm. right? Like like Adam to Eve. Yeah. Or um, like may, maybe maybe messing with time uh, fixes this or like as you just said like not valuating time or order um, but you, I feel like you're doing a similar thing with twinship mm-hmm. as is already thought about in terms of motherhood or parenthood maybe yeah, there is. It's not. I'm not. Very... It's not a full overlap, but the Venn diagram is overlapping in some ways. It seems. Yeah, I think. So we we've talked before about the social role and thus the change of identity that happens when a parent has a child. Like mm-hmm. you become a parent. Mm. You weren't a parent before you had the child, and and now because of that child, you are a parent. Yeah, the right? child makes you a parent. The child makes you a parent, right? Um. In the very specific instance of Adam and Eve and the specific instance of Mary and Jesus, there is that overlap of, of the maternal or the parental lens and the, and the Geminis lens mm-hmm. in that Adam was not actually complete humanity before Eve. That God did not allow humanity to exist just as that. That was not the final project. That was not the completion. Mm-hmm. You know, in Genesis 1... In the image of God, God created them, male and female, and, and as, as pillars of the spectrum, right, that, that God created, God created them. And so mm-hmm. humanity was not just male. It's not just female. It's not just something in the middle. It is the whole spectrum. It is the whole diversity held by the balance of those pillars. Mm-hmm. So Adam was not complete. And so in Eve being born of him or them, Adam was also completed. And so kind of the way that a twin, an identical twin is a cell that splits into two, that there is a, there is a, <coughs> a birth that is happening, but more than anything, it is the, the completion of how both formed each other. That you could say that each twin formed the other because they were formed from one, and that one became both. They demarcated each other mm-hmm. as twins. That's slightly different than forming each other. The, the forming happens on, on many different levels. On, on the biological level, the twins 
coming from the same unit, they couldn't exist without each other. I think that's what I'm trying to say. That the reason the twins exist is because the other twin exists. They're by like, name, like by identification, right? Like they're not a twin until they're twins. Like there's no existential dependence. Because you're, you're like presumably they just could have stayed as one, right? Is yeah. What you're saying. Yeah. Um, yeah. So if but then your twin is just yourself, in yourself. We are uh, yeah. all of us who aren't twins are just undifferentiated twins. I, that is an interesting thought. Yeah, uh, the as as twins form, and, I, and I'm probably gonna have to keep thinking about this more. But by by the cell itself pulling away, you could describe it as both parts of that cell that are pulling away. And as they pull away, they allow the other to become distinct. They allow the other part cell to be fully formed. Like a Siamese twin is a cell that split too late, an egg that split too late, where it did not become fully formed independent of the other. Too late or incompletedly? Well, Cause, cause I think the... it's too late in the gestation process that inhibited it from becoming complete. Is my understanding. I, I could be wrong on the biology of that. But I think depending on when the egg splits. Yeah, there's like stem cell late. stuff yeah. that if you take a little bit of a very early zygote and split it off, that zygote will just like mm-hmm. fill in the other half of what it just lost with identical stuff to itself and will form a whole being. As opposed to if you cut a small like fetus in half, it's not going to regrow the other half. Yeah. Yeah. It would just die. Yeah. So starting with that point, and again, I could work a little bit more on trying to figure out how I'm talking about that pulling away and, and, and how that mutually they're creating each other. But we start there, and then in the womb, there is absolutely a formation that is taking place in their relationship to one another, that mm-hmm. they understand themselves in relation to the other, and then that continues into their life as well. So there's a continual sense of formation in that. But I say that to say Eve was not just formed by Adam, but Eve formed Adam too. So that's part of the twins twinship, is that Adam wasn't complete humanity without Eve. And they formed each other. And Mary was also formed in and through and by Jesus as the Christ in whom all things are created and all things have their being. And then Mary formed Jesus. So there's this reciprocal sense of forming one another. Very uniquely in those two cases. Yes. And you're theologically expanding that? Yeah. So so I, I don't mean to conflate You're not making a biological theological argument necessarily. Like the limitations of exactly the biological mechanisms of fetus development are not limitations to your theology. But I I use those two as unique instances as the beginning and end of the human story as points where the maternal imagery and the uh, geminous imagery are overlapped. So the idea of being born of versus being co-created and and mutually forming one another. Yeah. So there is still this interesting level of dependence that strikes me with, again, that orange flag Mm -hmm. of codependency. Um, Which we we never came back to, so I'm glad you're bringing it up again. um, So that's a... We'll pin in that one. The other one is, again, maybe time... Like, you have a very interesting just 
take on time in general as a person mm-hmm. um, that extends theologically in interesting directions. Uh, I see the, and I guess maybe your, um, not pericope, what's the ABBA? Oh, chiasm? Chiasm, thank you. Um, I see how that could, yeah, it seems to have, so So I see a, um, I see creation largely as a evolutionary tree. Mm. Increasingly, rather than C.S. Lewis's further up and further in, mm-hmm. I see further up and further out. Yeah. Diversification mm-hmm. um, is my big thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the origin point of what I've understood from you from Geminist theology so far, 10 out of 10, 9 out of 10, would buy it. Um, um, <laughs> I don't, so my, this this leads, this is the second point of, I mentioned like, and again, forgive the vulgarity, um, potentially the incestuous nature or like what it, what is the co- recombination? There's a common orig- po- origin point, but you're saying that that, that relationship continues uh, and potentially reunites mm-hmm. in a way that I don't necessarily see. I see I see a common origin point. I don't necessarily see the reunification. The reunification. Well, I don't say reunification to erase distinction and diversity again. No, no, no. no. Yeah, I'm. I think we're not there necessarily right now. So. The idea of humanity being created to flare out like these branches, like these leaves that you're you're talking about, that there's mm-hmm. further up and further out. Since the further out the tree grows, the more full it is. the 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 bigger the picture, the in many ways, the more beautiful it is. Right? It is a fully grown and 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 ever expanding tree. Mm. So so there's beauty in all of that. But if the branch ever loses its connection to the tree, right. it falls off. It is just a branch. It is dead. It is dead. And so the tree in this sense is the spiritual essence of humanity. That is the Imago Dei that we all share, not as 8 billion different Imago Deis, 8 billion different images of God, but one mm. image that is collectively shared. Mm that we need to be continually connected to. And we find that connection through relationship with other people who also share that image. So I can only know myself as an image bearer of God if I know you. You teach me something about myself, about the Imago Dei that we both share. You help me understand it better in relationship. And so that's not necessarily a lateral movement of two diverse branches like crossing no yeah they they don't they, it's not that they there's no direct themselves right no but a it, branch but, technically can yeah but it's not necessarily healthy for the branch no um because it is supposed to spread out further so that it can reach more light and photo photosynthesize thank you <laughs> yeah so so the tree wants to go out but the the I and the we, I'm not saying that the we needs to turn inward to become an I. Mm. Or or that the eyes, the various eyes need to turn inward to to find or, or become the we mm-hmm. in a way that loses the I. Mm-hmm. You know, but but the sense that the I and the we need to always remain connected and that they always need to understand and be fed and grounded by each other. 
that the branches, as they photosynthesize, they um, help the tree exist. Yeah. And the tree obviously helps the branch exist. Mm -hmm. And that um, there is this harmonious relationship of balance that both need each other. Groovy. Does that solve the incestuous <laughs> comment? Yes, I think so. Okay. Just because you, you were talking about this level of closeness. Um, I don't know... I think ontologically, I'm still I'm still curious about the codependency thing, yep. so we can move that direction. That to be defined by another um, strikes me like the the insecurity thing mm -hmm. um, seems very close to the origin point and and the heart of this Geminist theology. It seems like a very anxious theology, <laughs> anxious in some ways, and I don't know if this is like representative of of you and your own relationships and things um tell me more how you see very, it as an anxious theology i mean even just what you were talking about of jacob grasping onto the heel saying don't leave me yeah right there's there's i'm i have no problem with connection i have no problem even necessarily with mutual dependence mm -hmm. it's the codependence mm -hmm. um it's the anxious dependence mm -hmm. that that again, uh, like, yeah, causes me to pause. So, being a twin is an incredible gift, and one of the potential pitfalls or weaknesses is, I would say, a tendency towards codependency. That isn't to say that all twins are codependent. Mm. Um, in fact, Hinia is much less codependent than I am, in part because of ways that she's been able to find herself. So what I would say is, you know, when we look at biblical examples of twins, for example, we don't consistently see that codependency. We don't consistently see that insecurity. Again, to the example of Adam and Eve as twins, we see completion. The idea of, of Mary and Jesus, that Mary is actually fully able to let Jesus be himself. Mm -hmm. and, but, but she understands herself through what Jesus is and is doing. Um, and not, Jesus obviously was shaped and formed to be himself through Mary. Um, <laughs> There's that really fun overlap story where they help each other be each other, uh, or Mary helps Jesus be Jesus, uh, the wedding at Cana. Yeah. And I think the path of twinship allows us to find ourselves as an I by finding ourselves as a we. Now, the pitfall that we in present modern society often struggle with is the overemphasis on the I to the loss of the we. The overemphasis on the we to the loss of the I is the other risk that a twin could fall into, that honestly anyone can fall into, but I see the particular tendency with twins in that. Now, it is the balance. It is the harmony between mm. the I and the we that allows us to exist and thrive as we were intended to do. And so... My the, the Geminist theology is not an anxious one where we are focusing solely on the we and, and abandoning and losing the I. That's not the goal. In fact, the we helps us understand the I to be a stronger, more secure I. That theoretically, in my relationship with Hinea, I would know myself far better than most people know themselves and be more secure in myself. Mm -hmm. myself. Like one of the things that I was reflecting on actually is as someone who shares my DNA, you know, it's not like we share our thoughts, but we do share the deepest understanding of where the other comes from. 
So the idea of empathy, of putting yourself in someone else's shoes, like there's nobody who can do that for me the way that she can because the way that she thinks, the way that she's existed, like it is so tied up with me, right? And so I, I always... In a way that is more than just a sibling born at the same time? I think so. I think so because we are shaped not just by nurture but by nature, mm. you know, and so there is something about my DNA code that shapes. So a great example of this is processing through ADHD, processing through neurodivergence, um, other questions, mental, mental health stuff. Um, even as I ask myself these questions, like, is this me? Do I, do I have these things? Do I operate in a different way? Her experience and her being able to reflect and be like, this is how I am the same and how we can see each other and parallel each other and feel at, at the very least a sense of reassurance and, and validity of not being alone in these questions that we're asking about ourselves. Mm -hmm. um, but I can believe in the fun fundamental goodness of humanity because I see it reflected in her, in the beautiful person that she is, and even in the ways that I have been taught to doubt myself, to doubt my own goodness, I see it in her and so I can see it myself. Like the idea that oftentimes it's easiest to love other people and hardest to love ourselves. Like having someone who is basically me and of whom I am, like we are a we, who you technically actually don't have the front row seat to their inner thoughts. Yeah. But you get like, it's kind of like that phrase there, but for the grace of God, go I. There literally go I, except for. Yeah. Yeah. And so, so if I can see in her all the goodness and the beauty and the love, then. It would be illogical for you to assume that you don't carry some of that. Yeah. Exactly. That even in her carrying it, she is carrying it for me and with me. Mm. So I'll wrap up on the codependency and then, and then you can ask your further questions. I do appreciate your questions a lot. So in theory, a twin should make their twin the most secure. In practice, that doesn't always happen. Mm, preach. So when I think about being whole as a twin and, and the Geminus lens of Christ welcoming, welcoming us all into twinship, it is in the experience of that shared humanity, that shared twinship with other people that we can actually become whole ourselves and find ourselves as an individual too mm. um, and to be most grounded and whole and secure in our place. Mm -hmm. That is the hope. The reality of our world is that it doesn't always work that way and, and we are competitive and we do turn against each other because we turn inward into this fear or we are taught to turn away from ourselves and the we the masses gives us an escape where we can stop thinking about ourselves and get lost into the codependency so mm. both of these ways are possible but the but the twin is a we and an i and i think i'm just going to keep coming back to that <laughs> as my main mantra um and that is the strength the strength of being able to fully deeply intimately connect with that we and also to be honored and celebrated in the i so that's it for codependency. Maybe. Questions. Maybe. No. I mean, you can. <laughs> I just wanted to feel complete in, in my thought. But yeah. go ahead. Yeah, it is. Um, so I know uh, an inordinate number of twins. Mm. Um, I don't know how or why this has happened, but I have like five or six sets of twins that, I'm, that I've been close to as like some of my best friends, um, for which I am greatly blessed, <laughs> mostly. Um, and so, at least from my perspective, being in relationship with so many and and seeing so many examples and and healthy and unhealthy 
small things, not even characterizing an entire twin relationship, any of them as unhealthy, but the ways in which it has been difficult. Mm-hmm. Um, the similar ways, you know, just like it, I know a couple only children, uh, single children, only only child kids, um, and identifying strengths and weaknesses or difficulties and whatever to that. Um, and one of the things of like parents of twins, uh, I've known some who are very intentional about making sure that the, the kids have different um, friend circles mm-hmm. or uh, dress differently. <laughs> um so as to not be confused as one another. Uh, or, you know, there's those fun twin stories of pretending to be each other and, and like, passing for mm-hmm. each other um, and messing with people. Um, but, yeah, my my f- very first best friend was a fraternal twin, and he didn't always get along with his brother. I, frankly, don't uh, get along with his brother anywhere near as I get along with him. Yeah. Um, and so I'm just, maybe part of this is just pointing out or curious of y- there are so many different twin experiences experiences yeah, out there yeah, yeah. too. Um, so what do I make of that? Yeah. I think any contextual theology is going to run into the problem of no community being a monolith. Mm. You know, James Cone, for example, does not speak for the entire black community. Yes. Um, that does not mean that he has nothing to contribute to black theology. Mm-hmm. And in, in many ways, I think what the only limitations of his theological perspective are the ways that it makes assertions or assumptions about the black experience as a whole, as a whole, more than the theological vantage point. Mm. I mm-hmm. actually think those are in some ways a little different. Yeah. yeah, the, yeah. The, the experience certainly shapes the theological vantage point, but there is something to be said about the way that Cone articulates the black vantage point that I think even people, black people who come from more privileged backgrounds or who might not resonate with all the experiences of oppression that he describes can still mm-hmm. experience that. Mm-hmm. So, and, and you know, at the end of the day, too, I guess we'd have to just acknowledge things to be generalities, mm. the borders to be fuzzy. There are plenty of black people who don't think black theology applies to them, mm. and that doesn't take away its merit, right? So for twins, even within my own experience of being a twin, like there was a season, this was at my most insecure, my point of greatest struggle, where Hania was both my lifeline and also my greatest enemy mm-hmm. and, and greatest source of insecurity. Mm-hmm. And she was both of those things simultaneously, even if they seem so polar opposite, right? And I know plenty of twins who have grown apart or who at the very least have had major points of conflict. Or have lost their twin. Or who have lost their twin. Or people who were born where one of the twins didn't survive. Right. Or twins who were separated at birth. Yeah. Um. I want to say that there is a unifying theological overarching generality that I would like to contribute to, not speak for, Mm -hmm. uh, but to help flesh out as I, in the future, will interview, communicate, and learn from other twins. Mm -hmm. Um, I think the thing, the we, we as I, I as we that I'm articulating feels to me one of the pillars 
of that overarching narrative. And that remains true even in unhealthy twin relationships. So for Jacob and Esau, for example, that is still taking place. And we can experience that in the text in the way that they can never get let go of each other. Mm-hmm. Um, that reflects an internal wrestling, an internal separation, an internal disintegration that will never be resolved until the two of them have found true reconciliation, a true healing. Yeah. So I don't mean to speak for the entire twin experience because it is so diverse as we have just described a little bit of, Mm -hmm. Uh, but I do think that there are resounding points that can both validate and speak to the twin experience or, or the, the twin theological perspective and um, that present a very valuable reflection for people who are not twins as well. Mm-hmm. I think my only other uh, comment, question type thing is I'm I'm very curious about that. <laughs> this is coming my, from my perspective as as a bi person. Mm-hmm. I think that um, Geminist theology, Geminist theology, uh, is one of the few kind of theological perspectives that another it, th- that are that are strongly based on uh dualities mm. or parallels or there there's some bi aspect there's some two-ish aspect of it mm-hmm. um even if it's the definition of you know so one of the the modern better definition of bisexual is not attracted to men and women it's attracted to your own gender and other genders mm. so there's a there's an us and there's an in and out there's a or mm. like a there's a two-way type of thing going on yeah and i would just be really curious to see synthesis between geminist theology and other kind of dual different dual theologies whether it's by theology or um even like a certain mental health um disorders i guess in terms of bipolar or um uh, schizophrenia or, or something like that, like, or theologies that cross cultures, um, things that are intentionally holding balances between two or more things. Mm-hmm. Um, post-colonial theology, I think is, mm-hmm. is something that's similar. It, it's intentionally holding something and another thing. Um, and there's huge strengths to that. I, I see that as, incredibly important because it gives maybe the best models of how to cross differences, Mm. right? Black theology itself, uh, or I don't know, other feminist theologies don't excel at crossing boundaries. What do you mean? What boundaries? Uh, boundaries of like dealing with the other, dealing with what is not feminist or dealing with what is not black. It beca- it can quickly become antagonistic, in an us sort of us them sort of way. You mean or like reactionary, exclusive? exclusive reactionary, yeah. Um, as opposed to theologies that intentionally and deliberately hold multiplicities. I think there's there's a really beautiful thing about explicitly being able to ex- like about that theology being predicated upon 
navigating those differences, mediating yeah. them. You look concerned. <laughs> well, I I don't know if I would be so quick to agree about the. Uh, I know I was when you used the word exclusivity, but um, the inflexibility of feminist theology or or inability to um, hold the other, right? Like like even feminist theology is not about woman's supremacy, but about a sense of critiquing the patriarchal theology that is the presupposition. Black theology is critiquing the presupposition of white theology, but it still offers something new that I think is meant to be open for all. Like, you know, Cone doesn't say, white people, this doesn't apply to you. It's, you have to you have to become us. You have to join us, not in an assimilative sense where you lose something, but in fact, you you leave behind the the harmful things. Yeah, I think maybe I didn't communicate this effectively. Then um, they are per, they are perspectival of not a monolithic, mm-hmm. but a singular perspective, like I even for a community kind of thing. Right. I mean, yeah. this is this is the necessity of why womanist theology exists at all. Womanist theology is another one that. Uh, that holds deliberately holds multiplicity an intersection yes yes in that case um but i'm more focused on the multiplicity aspect mm-hmm. it is this and another thing mm-hmm. um yeah and so i i just particularly appreciate like it's even just i really appreciate the move in uh films that are happening now there's there's a whole lot of films that are going in a multiverse direction, mm. um, and I think that says something about our society. Yeah, um, that we are increasingly able to hold multiple realities, and increasingly being disillusioned with compartmentalization. The idea of things being inherently unrelated and 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 in, mm-hmm. uh, extricable from one another. Mm-hmm. You know, we're like, no, no, no. These things are connected, and we want to see it. Yeah. So that's all I'm saying is yeah. I I think I really appreciate the the intentionally dualistic or multiplicative um, aspect of yeah. Geminist theology. So I gave the first Geminist theology sermon yesterday for preaching class. Mm. Um, and one of the feedback, Denise said this, that she was concerned that it was going to be exclusive. Mm-hmm. But then I... I yeah. Oh, well, and... this is a theology that only twins can understand. And can non-twins do <laughs> feminist theology? I mean, th- this was our question in feminist epistemologies. Can a non-woman be a feminist? And it's like, well, if done well, <laughs> hopefully all theologies are inclusive in that way. I think I think there is something about a contextual theology that needs to be produced from that context. Like, I can't write black theology. I can learn from and... That's a whole debate. Like, I... Yeah. Okay. That's that's my <laughs> stance. That's my stance. But, you know, I, I see myself as uh, in, in solidarity mm-hmm. with, with a contextual theology that is outside of my context as opposed to being an active contributor. But that's my personal stance. Um, so the thing about Geminist theology is that it is not it 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 holds that it it holds the sense that um there is a unique vantage point of the twin but it is also 
uh, reflection into the entirety of the human condition. Mm -hmm. And one thing that I would say is, uh, you know, I think about like triplets and other sets of more than one child Mm -hmm. as, as falling under the same umbrella as Geminist theology. Like, I don't know if there's something distinct that would need to be, maybe we can call like a, a sub category, right? Like there could be a sub bracket of Geminist theology that is like triplet theology or something right. like that. Like there, there are probably unique things that they'd be able to contribute, especially the idea of like identical twins in a triplet and then one fraternal. Sure. You right. know, like like there are unique dynamics there. Mm-hmm. Um, but the the idea of harmonies and balance, you need poles for there to be balance. That, that two forces that are opposing and pushing against each other create a sense of stability, that create a sense of security. Mm-hmm. Gravity is, is, the force of gravity is both a pushing up and a pushing down, right? Like we are pushing down upon the earth. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is how we have our stability is that, is that Isaac Newton, right, talks about forces both repel each other in equal mm-hmm. force, right? Um, at least two. At least two is the thing though, right? And so... For me, Geminus theology is saying an at least two. Yeah. You know, that you have also the whole spectrum within, but you need those two mm-hmm. to make space for the whole spectrum. So light and dark, right? Or night and day. You have sunrise, sunset. You have all these different hues, golden hour. You have dawn, dusk. You have all of this within the spectrum, but you need night and day as these two forces to allow for that whole balance, harmony to exist. And so with, with Geminus theology in that sense, it is a two and, two plus, that holds that tension of what is the two, what is the one, and how do they make sense, the we and the I. So, yeah, yeah I think that's... I that That's comforting in some ways. There's some aspect of queerness and, like, not, oh, absolutely. not just, uh, like, full radical queerness that wants to, like, take down the poles but not take down the multiplicity. But that's beside the point and maybe not even actually productive or grounded. I, I could think about that more. Um, but there is something that I really I really like about all this that, um, I mean, I once asked my mom if I had a twin who died at childbirth, mm. and she said no, um, because I feel like there's something, some part of me that is like, missing or non complimented mm. um and that's something that i have not spent enough time kind of unpacking or thinking about um can i say something to that yeah as i think about how i have come to know myself by being a twin and i hear your story there could have been a chance that you could have been split and been twins even if that didn't happen, like the you that you are now, as you said earlier in this podcast, right? Like you, if you don't have a twin, there's an inner twin. Yeah. Right. Um, and, and there is some sense to me of the spiritual yearning and, and, and intuitive understanding of that sense of duality and connection. Mm. Yeah. Exactly. And even you not being a twin, you still have somewhere within you that sense, that longing. And, and I would hope to encourage that to grow to an ever expansion of intimacy with other people and that, and that we can start to look at the entire human existence as 
a ref- reflection, the, the fractalization, that tree, the branches coming out from one stem and that in those relationships that can start to give us little um, tangentially twin experiences. Tangential to the human oneness. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, human creation, no different. Uh, <laughs> um, but yeah, I, well, and here, so here's the struggle then. There, there could be some very rare biological mechanism by which I might actually be a twin, whether it's hidden chimerism or, um, uh, or some like differentiation that then just died so early on that uh, my mom didn't even notice it, or mm-hmm. you know anything like that. But to fill that need or void or even just sentiment biologically would be unsatisfying almost given its impracticality and non-experiential not experientiality meaning that the that the end result the end goal the the practicable method of non-twins pursuing twinship um or recognizing inherent twinship already happens through community as as being satisfying hopefully <laughs> that yeah it, it happens through community as a pursuit of the kind of intimacy that on one level twins have but even on the level of twins is still not complete like i see it all as pointing toward the light that is full unification with god right like even hinia does not know me as well as god knows me mm-hmm. right and and that is the intimacy that i'm longing for that hinia is a prophetic signpost to myself and to the world Mm. of what that intimacy looks like, what we were designed for. And it's all pointing us back. And as we pursue and find it in community, it teaches us, it it helps us understand, but also deepen our our yearning for what it is that we were designed for, which is the full intimacy with God. Yeah. Which will be satisfied eventually. Thanks be to God. By the grace of God. That leaves us with a lot to think about. Um, so, hmm. <laughs> Beloved, may you find wonder in the mundane, hope amidst the chaos, and comfort in the love that makes you and we you. Go in peace. Mm-hmm.